0: My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 15. Who cares? It was just facts. Even though I desperately wanted to stay in Germany, it was proving impossible to get a work permit. Honestly, I had absolutely zero desire to return to that hateful, homophobic hellhole that was America during the Reagan years. In Berlin, gays were treated like pampered mascots. They adored us. Berliners wanted everyone to know they were proudly reclaiming their place as the world capital of tolerance and hedonistic pleasure. A thriving gay community is an integral part of how Berliners proudly define themselves. There was no need for a gay ghetto in Berlin, or even gay clubs. All the dance clubs were gay, and that's where the straight people went, because we played the best music, and our clubs were the most fun. We jokingly refer to it as the velvet pillow syndrome because sometimes it was downright irritating the way Berliners pampered us and catered to our community. Just to give you an example, one night every year during Berlin's gay pride celebration, the straight community comes out and lights thousands of tea candles to line all the walkways in the Tiergarten where gays notoriously cruise for sex at night. It was not only visually beautiful, but a charming and somewhat tongue-in-cheek display of support that was so uniquely Berlin, I can't imagine it happening anywhere else on Earth. This was certainly not the case in America. At that point, America also had the worst AIDS crisis in the world. But I had no choice. If I wanted to work, if I wanted a career and a future, I had to go back to America. So, I reluctantly planned to move to New York City. As I was packing up my belongings in boxes and mailing them to a friend in New York, I popped in to see my doctor, Heiko Jessen for a quick checkup and a last-minute HIV test. It came back positive. But the confirmation test, the Western blood, came back negative. Dr. Jessen was, and still is, one of Germany's most respected AIDS doctors and researchers. He correctly suspected at the time that I was in the very early stages of seroconversion. Seroconversion is the transition point when a body is first exposed to the HIV virus to when antibodies of the virus become present in the blood. European researchers needed a better understanding of what happens in our bodies during seroconversion, so Dr. Yesen asked if I could come in for blood tests every 48 hours over the next two or three weeks. Samples of my blood were then sent to researchers at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, the Hungarian Academy of Science Research Center, and the Pasteur Institute in France. I was actually very grateful that from the very first moment of my HIV infection, fate had given me an opportunity to assist Europe's leading AIDS researchers. I was in very good health at the time, so I figured I had a good year or two before I started to get sick, and probably a couple more years after that before I was dead. If I had to die, though, I wanted to be closer to my mom, so I went ahead with my plans to return to America. The strangest thing was how casual I felt about dying. I was only 35 years old, but you have to remember at that point, most of my friends were already dead. I had been going to an endless stream of funerals for years. Many of my friends were younger than me when they died, so when my time came, it just seemed kind of normal. I thought I should have been shocked or terrified or something, but all I felt was an overwhelming wave of relief as if somebody had lifted a huge weight from my shoulders, and I quite easily got used to the fact that now I was going to die too, just like all my friends had. As an added bonus, I no longer had to worry about building a future or a career. All I had to do was enjoy what time I had left, so I went ahead with my move to New York. As I was leaving for the airport, literally while turning the key to lock the door of my Berlin apartment, the phone rang. It was Babelsberg Studios. Somehow, they had done the impossible. They were calling to inform me they had my work permit and a job offer as an assistant producer for some new daytime TV show. I didn't know what to do. Finally, my dream of staying in Berlin was a possibility. But all my things were already in New York. My flight to New York was leaving in three hours, and I was dying, and I wanted to be closer to my mom. That was the clincher, so I said no, thank you. To this day, saying no to that job offer is the biggest regret of my life. But how could I have possibly known the new medications were going to save my life? And how could I have possibly known that new TV show for Bonne Liebe, The Forbidden Love, would go on to be the longest-running, most popular daytime TV show in German history? Once I arrived in New York, I had to hit the ground running and find a job, but the new meds were killing me. I Get it, that's a silly thing to say about the medication that saved my life. But the first generation of HIV medication was horrific. The side effects made many of us so sick we could barely function. I was reduced to focusing on just surviving one minute at a time. If I thought about long-term survival, I would have to admit to myself that it just wasn't worth it. If this was the quality of life these new miracle drugs offered us, then why bother? At that point, I had no health issues regarding HIV-AIDS. I was perfectly healthy. It was the medication that was making me deathly ill. The first political victory of the HIV-AIDS movement in America had been an earlier release of medication that could potentially save the lives of terminally ill patients like us. Basically, since we were all going to die anyway, we agreed to become pharmaceutical guinea pigs. Well, it was definitely a case of be careful what you wish for, because these meds were hideous. I was constantly nauseous. My New York apartment was in Chelsea, and I had to memorize the location of every public restroom on 8th Avenue from 14th Street to Penn Station. I made a point of never being farther than a half a block away from a public restroom. Oftentimes, I had only seconds to find one. The meds also made my hands shake. Well, to be honest, my whole body, right down to my very soul, was constantly shaking. It was downright embarrassing, and my anxiety levels were through the roof. I hadn't experienced such high levels of anxiety since I was 14 and had a bleeding ulcer. This was certainly not the life I had promised that terrified little 14-year-old boy when I was trying to survive the church-mandated child abuse designed to cure my homosexuality. One of the medications was a thick mint and caramel-flavored liquid, the most god-awful flavor combination ever devised by man. The only way I could keep from throwing it up was if I immediately chased it with a tall glass of chocolate milk to cut the taste. This pleasant experience was repeated three times daily. To this day, the mere sight of chocolate milk makes me gag. Eating became a tedious task. For two reasons. Number one, I could no longer taste my food. Number two, I no longer had enough saliva to chew my food. But I couldn't allow myself to get hungry. If I did, I'd start throwing up again, followed immediately by several hours of absolute exhaustion. I felt like an old, wrung-out rag. But the side effect that haunts me to this day, I was tired. Oh my god, I was so exhausted all the time. Being exhausted every moment of every day was one of the most depressing experiences of my life and has come to define the past 28 years of my life. We would occasionally take medication vacations and go a few days or a weekend without taking our meds. The doctors told us this was extremely dangerous as it could lead to our bodies becoming resistant to the medication. But what choice did we have? Every breath was a reminder of how miserable we were. We had to occasionally remind ourselves what we were fighting for, what it felt like to be a normal, healthy human being, instead of this constantly nauseous, uber-anxious, convulsive, pharmaceutical guinea pig. I was so miserable. We were all miserable. I tried to convince myself cancer patients must feel like this, maybe even worse. Somehow they survived treatment, but for them there was at least the possibility of light at the end of the tunnel. We didn't have that. This endless misery was our new so-called life and there was no end in sight. Until my T-cell count dropped below 400, I also had to work to support myself. Some guys intentionally got sicker faster so they could qualify for social security. I worked as a cater waiter, but only for companies that were owned or managed by gays. They understood why I had to run to the bathroom two or three times every hour of every day. Of course, my stomach problems weren't helped by the fact that I had to consume copious amounts of coffee, Coca-Cola, and Red Bull just to make it through the day. I wasn't the only one asking myself, is it really worth fighting so hard to stay alive if this is the quality of life we have to look forward to? Frankly, I have nothing but respect for those courageous gay men who chose to take their own lives before they got too sick. They chose to spare themselves and their loved ones from the slow agony of dying from AIDS. On more than one occasion, I told my doctor, if this is what my life was going to be like, then no thank you, I'm not interested. Our doctors told us it was just a matter of time before the next generation of meds would hit the market, and they assured us they would be much easier to take and have far fewer side effects. We only had to hang on for a few more months, or a year at the most. I spent the majority of those months sick in bed so I could save up enough energy to get through work. What precious little free time was left was spent taking care of our dying friends or visiting them in the hospital to say goodbye. And of course, there was the never-ending stream of funerals. Ironically, for years, those funerals were the only social life any of us had. Slowly, my body started getting used to the medications. When I went a day, then a whole week, and finally an entire month without these fatalistic thoughts, I knew I was going to survive at least for a while longer. We all struggled on, and when the new meds finally hit the market, they were, thank God, much easier to take. The only side effects that still persisted were a milder nausea and, of course, the endless exhaustion. David Seidner, the celebrated photographer from Vanity Fair, was my last friend to die from AIDS. After that, people just stopped dying, and I slowly began to grapple with the realization I wasn't going to die. I was actually one of the lucky few who had survived. The age of death and AIDS was finally over. I had always imagined this huge celebration, a ticker tape parade like those pictures you see of Times Square when we won World War II. In the four years America was in World War II, 400,000 brave American soldiers lost their lives. That's about 2.5% of the soldiers who served. And look at the well-deserved celebration America had when we finally won that war. We're still talking about it 80 years later. Our war with AIDS had lasted over 15 years. At that point, half my life, my entire adult life. To date, 40 million people have died of AIDS. Yet there wasn't so much as a whimper. For the first six years of the AIDS crisis, not one single dollar was spent for research or cure in America. In the first few weeks of the AIDS crisis, when there were only 2,000 recorded deaths and AIDS was still geographically isolated to only three American cities, Dr. Matilda Krim pleaded with her good friend, President Ronald Reagan. She explained to him it was absolutely urgent. He immediately fund research into the mysterious disease killing the gay community before it became a pandemic and spread to the wider community. Unsurprisingly, given Reagan's famous hatred of homosexuals, he declined. He refused to even say the word AIDS in public for the next six years. And may I also remind you, it was only America that chose to ignore AIDS. The rest of the civilized world was horrified by America's intentional policy of ignoring AIDS, and they were shocked by what was happening in America. During the ceremony to rededicate the Statue of Liberty, with President Reagan and French President Francois Mitterrand in attendance, the MC made a joke about AIDS. The camera panned to show the audience reaction, and we saw Nancy and Ronald Reagan laughing hysterically, while President Francois Mitterrand and his wife Danielle looked on in utter horror and disbelief. And don't think for a single moment that Nancy and Ronnie were the only ones laughing at our suffering and dying. At that time, polling confirmed that most Americans were indifferent to AIDS. Even in my own family, in spite of the fact that they all knew I was HIV positive, they openly joked about how fags got what we deserved when we died of AIDS. Other than the jokes, though, most Americans just ignored AIDS, but they were incensed if we were ever rude enough to talk about it. And who can blame them? How dare we, insignificant sinners, interrupt their fantasy lives in Reagan's shining city on a hill with our trivial deaths, especially when we deserve to die? However, three days after the first straight person was diagnosed with HIV, President Ronald Reagan declared AIDS a national emergency and poured tens of millions of dollars into finding a cure. Three days after the first straight person was diagnosed with HIV. By this time, AIDS had already spread to the wider community, and it was a worldwide pandemic exactly as Dr. Matilda Krim had predicted six years before. America's response to AIDS in the 1980s and 90s is best summed up in the words of British poet David Gascoigne when describing the decade that was the 1930s, which led to the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust. It was a case of the blind leading the blindfolded. Only what blinded President Ronald Reagan was his infamous hatred of homosexuals. And the whole world paid the price. Imagine, just take a second here, and imagine how many tens of millions of lives would have been saved were it not for President Ronald Reagan and America's historical hatred of homosexuals. 40 million dead. That's more than the entire population of California. Among them, 60, 70, maybe 75% of my friends, men I loved, were dead. Yet the prevailing attitude continued to be, who cares, it was just fags. Though that may have appeared to be the case in America, in actuality, worldwide, the vast majority of people who died from AIDS were in fact heterosexuals, again, exactly as Dr. Matilda Grimm had predicted. So we just got on with our lives. We no longer had to take care of our dying friends. There were no more tearful goodbyes in the AIDS wards or two or three funerals a week to attend. I was genuinely shocked by how much free time I had. I realized fighting AIDS had been my entire adult life, my entire youth, and now it was over and almost all my friends were gone. So there really wasn't anyone left for me to celebrate with. The thing is, though, it wasn't just AIDS that killed all those men I loved. It wasn't just a pandemic that killed 40 million people. It was hatred and homophobia. And there are many in our society today who want to go down that road again. Most of you probably never met any of the people we lost to AIDS. There are certainly no reminders of them anywhere. Why would we think of them? But I remember. I'll never forget how time and time again I held the hands of my dying friends and I swore to them... I would honor their dying wish, and I would never stop fighting for equality for all in America. So this is how I celebrate. This is their ticker tape parade. The best way to honor the army of gay angels we lost is to remind people what it was like when we were the focus, the victims of America's hatred and violence. To remind people that it was America's hatred of homosexuals that caused the unnecessary deaths of tens of millions of people, and most of them were straight. We must never let people forget the price we all paid, the price the entire world paid for America's hatred. At that time, I didn't understand the wisdom of my friend's dying wish. They understood then, as I do now, the single best way to prevent such things from ever happening to anyone else ever again is to make people remember, never let them forget, the price my army of gay angels paid. The price the whole world paid for America's hatred, bigotry, and violence. I still see them, though. I see my friends every day. Oftentimes, it brings tears to my eyes as I see how America's youth so gracefully, casually, and confidently embody diversity, equality, and inclusion, as if it never occurred to any of you it could ever be any other way. Do you see them now, too? I do. I see them right now. I see them in all of you. The miracle of diversity is their legacy. And you are that miracle. You are the dream we devoted our lives to create. It's a magnificent legacy. It's so beautiful. You are all so beautiful. But now this beautiful legacy is under threat. And now it's your turn to defend it. My name is Stuart Merrill. And I woke up this day.